0: Service here. Father, this text is really a quite difficult passage and it speaks toward things that are not popular in our culture. So, Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us insight? Would you give us grace? And uh, we, we thank you for your word, even though these hard things are said by Paul. It, it, it forces us to wrestle with you, to struggle as to what we believe. And, and so, Lord, just speak to us and may your spirit work in us and change us. These things we pray in your name. Amen. I want to jump into the text here this morning, right off the bat. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, the first couple of verses here. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now understand this, that Paul, that Paul had gone, he had started this church and he's writing from a distance here, but he's referring back to a time when he was with the church and he had taught them many things. I am, I'm guessing he would have walked through the Old Testament pointing out things as to pointing to Jesus and, and teaching about all kinds of things as he would have gone through the Old Testament. So that phrase that you receive from us, what instructions we gave you, is referring back to the time that he was with them. And he's urging them, this urge to go, guys, I want you to please God. And recognize that these instructions that I'm talking about are from God himself, from Jesus himself. But you think of this idea, what does it mean to please God? Well, frankly, I think the context is you think of the opposite. So it's either we please God, or we please what? I think it's this, ourselves. Either we look to go, what, God, I want to please you, or the opposite is, it's got to be about me, it's about what I want, my desires, my needs. And frankly, the challenge is, or the reality is this, is that we please, we look to please the one or the things that we love the most. See, wherever we direct our love, that's what we want to please. If we're directing it toward God, we want to please Him. If it's toward something else, we end up getting stuck there. But it comes back to this uh, assuming that Paul was doing some teaching, and I think it was some very difficult teaching as he was ministering to this congregation. But there's another piece to this, and look at verse 3 here. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that word sexual immorality is a really wide word in this context, and that it, it, the root of that, it, it, we, in our culture, the word pornography comes from that word. It means fornication, and it actually even goes wider than that. But the question I think has to, you have to stop and ask is, why does Paul make a big deal here about sexual immorality? Why is he wrestling with this? Well, I, I think the answer to that really lies in that culture and at that time. Now understand this, the Roman Empire, when you think of words like chastity, or sexual purity, they were frankly unknown virtues at that time. And if you look read, read back, I was a history major in college and I actually had to do a Roman history class. And, and the blatant homosexuality, rampant prostitution, um, matter of fact, even a pedophile, that issue, is that was actually accepted back then as long as you would... The context is if he was a slave, he was okay. If he was a free child, it wasn't okay. So that's the context of that culture. But have you to go down a little bit of a path here? Have you ever heard the word power corrupts? And I think as I look back and as I look through the eyes of a Roman culture, I think this is really so true. And it's this is that the leaders so often set the example, and then the leadership, it kind of moves through the culture as a result of what the leadership adopts. And in that time, in that era, that the early church is being formed is that the leadership were on the leading edge of sexual immorality. And these influencers, these people, what ended up happening is that what they adopted Begin to flow into the rest of society. It filtered down, and more and more practices got accepted, and it became a part of their value system. But there's one step that also took place and that applies, I think, to us today. In reading some reviewing some history, I came across a historian and he made this comment. I'll put it on the screen. Screen here. A useful key in which to observe and contemplate the evolution of ancient Rome morality is to consider that morality, a philosophy in its own right, is something that comes from within society. So it's the, the culture at large adopts it. In which, though, this is the key. In which is subsequently encoded through laws. Do you catch that? The historian is saying that this morality begins to filter down and then the culture embraces it and the next step is to enact laws which reinforce that. And you look at the state of Minnesota and you go, yes, that's exactly what we've done. So culture begins to change its laws again to reflect, really, what's the true morality going on? Redefining marriage. Abortion. And and as I was pondering, I I think here's the thing that I think we forget. The culture already shifted before the law came into place. People, a large proportion of of the culture had adopted it. But even here, history tells us with the Roman culture that it filtered and over the course of maybe a couple hundred years, it crept in and it became the norm in in that arena. Now here's another piece to it. When you see what happened to them, do you realize, though, you cannot blame it on the Internet? You can't blame it on the TV. You can't blame it on the media. And it still got ingrained into their culture. And eventually, it actually was one of the contributing factors, history would say, in terms of the collapse of the Roman Empire. But... But in spite of that, in spite of a culture spiraling down morally, this is also true. As persecution of Christianity grew, as morality cycled down, understand the stage was set where the church was birthed and it actually grew and it actually flourished and thrived. And I think we stop, we, we haven't stopped to realize that. And you realize this God is in control even when a culture spirals down like that. So, can we stem the tide? I go, I don't know. But I know this God is in control. And the reality is, when the culture gets darker, when it grows darker and darker, there's another truth the church can become brighter and brighter and brighter, and make greater impact even more. And that's what happened in that day. But I think there's a reason, another reason, why this church was able to, even in light of this deep, dark time of sexual immorality, why it was so bright. And number five, I said it if you're taking notes, another reason here. I said it this way, churches that thrive in a broken world are rooted in the authority of God and His Word. And I think at that time, and Paul is actually speaking to it today, that it's God is the one that defines what is true. Look at verse 3 and 4 though, again. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, I understand where I got to go today in some of the application, then, is what does that mean for us today? where we're to control ourselves. Our body is there for holiness. We're supposed to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I also understand this. This is a very hard message, and it's not very popular in our culture of today as well. But let me actually point to another verse that was written years and years, hundreds of years before this this time, that kind of sets the stage even for where we're at today. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So here's Isaiah years and years and years ago saying this is what happens. People come along and say that which is good is now wrong, and that which is wrong is now good. There's a flip that's taken place here. And think of some of the things that have flipped over in our culture. So so let me be, just give you three lies that the world has is now screaming out to everybody out there, And but where it's been flipped around. The first one for your notes, number one, that adultery is no big deal. We see this on the TV over and over and over again. But n- notice... Why it even points to this, Numbers, verse 6 here in chapter 4. It points out that no one transgress and wrong is brother in this area because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In this matter is probably speaking directly to the issue of adultery. But understand this, the moral fabric where people were getting saved and coming into the church, this is the moral fabric of that point. If you had money, it was assumed that it was okay for the man to have a wife, and she was the keeper of the home, and for the kids, She had the family. But on the other side, the husband could go out and he could have frequent prostitutes on the side and have other mistresses on the side. That was okay back then. So understand the violation here. As Paul is looking at this, he's saying no. And I suspect that he would have been teaching this earlier. He's saying this. One man, one woman coming together. Two people becoming one. It's marriage is what God had ordained. It represents a relationship of Christ and the church. And it's defi- see, it's defining a little bit what Paul believes, but he says it's from God. So, but the likelihood, again, that there, was a, there would have been a number of people that would have been a part of that early church that would have been a, adopted those lifestyles and they were getting saved and the Holy Spirit was changing their lives and they were coming into the church and Paul would have taught them previously even about this issue. And I can just see him at some point when he was there those, those months at the church, he would have sat down and opened his Bible their scrolls whatever it was to Genesis 2. For this reason a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one. Paul would have taught them, and it would have been so contrary to the culture that they came out of. So, that's understand the context of that. But there's a second, another one, a second lie that I think we buy into as well. And on a news site, um, came across this, it was one of like a Yahoo site and some news, and, and, and this was the, there was a picture of a woman and it said this, ready for relationship, but not marriage. And I go, okay, I'm speaking on this, what does it mean? And so I, I and this, is, this is a weekly magazine interview, this gal, I don't even know who she is, uh, what, what actress, I didn't even write down the name. But this is what she said, I definitely want to grow old with someone, but I have a lot of trust issues with men. I don't want to waste my time if it's not love, so I've had a lot of micro-relationships, whatever that means. I don't want to get married again, but I feel like I'm ready for a long-term relationship. I want to find someone who fits in with me and my children. In four years, I haven't brought one man around my children because no one has been worthy. I won't do that until I feel like it's love. See, she wants a relationship, without commitment to the institution of marriage but here's the lie number 2 trying out marriage before real marriage is normal and preferred our cultures adopted that but it's a lie it's flipped over see people don't want to acknowledge that living together can rob people of something of somebody else's spouse even in the future People don't want to admit that the divorce rate is higher for those who live together before they're married. It jumps from 40% to about 65%. And the stat says this as well. A long-term relationship by co- cohabitation, by year 10 there's a 90% failure rate. See, the idea here, Paul would have said that no. That sexuality is for Marriage. God blesses it and it honors it. And God says that, you know what, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, my wife owns my body and vice versa. We're made for each other. Why? Because we're married. See, for the one who claims to be a follower of Christ and you keep going down this path, guys, the term is sexual immorality. But there's a third lie as well here. And this one has been reframed actually the last couple of years. And the lie says this, number three, same-sex relationships are okay as long as they're in a committed relationship. And frankly, many churches have bought into this issue. I counted up at least somewhere between eight and ten denominations right now actually would buy this lie. See, as long as you affirm monogamy or fidelity, then it isn't a sin. And the argument that if two people really love each other and you're not hurting anybody else, then it's okay. And folks, that is flipped. The Scriptures are going, no. It's a lie. Look at the clarity of the text here. A foundation of what God says. This isn't my opinion. This is God's opinion. Look at verse 3 again. For this is what? The will of who? God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Go to Romans 1 where it talks about homosexuality. He goes, this is, no, this is wrong. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in a passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. Then verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man. So where is it from? But God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, the authority on this issue is God himself. It's the will of God. Yes, he's acknowledging here. People have desires. It's true. But the desires are not pleasing to God. They're for something else. It's for selfishness. It's, it's because of our own self-love. Now, I, I understand this as well there's people, many people today, matter of fact, I think the number is growing, who would look at this book and say, you know what, I don't care. I don't care what God thinks. And, and that's, that's okay. That's, they're, they're right to do that. But here's the tension. If we claim to be a follower of Christ, in order to believe that lie, a switch has to get turned on and it's a flipping thing. This switch actually flips us. And we call evil good and good evil. And, and here's how I define it for your notes flipping the switch. I claim the right, here's flipping it, to determine what is good and what is sinful. God, what you desire does not matter. And if we want to admit it, now here's the other side of it. If we really want to admit it, We all do this at times. God, it's okay for me to yell at my wife. I'm justified. No, that's flipping the switch. But where does this switch come from where we decide? I want to show you the first time it happened. Genesis chapter 3. It's the root of where sin comes from. Look at in 3 verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, lying to her, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now what does it mean to be like God, knowing good and evil? And it's this. God is the one that determines what's good and evil. He says, this is good, this is wrong. God has the right to decide that. Why? Because He's God. Okay? We're all agreement on there. But we come along and we say, "What what did they do? Adam and Eve said, oh, you know what? God's keeping something from us. So therefore, it is okay to eat the fruit. Do you see the switch that took place? They ended up, Adam and Eve said, We now claim the right to determine what's good and what's evil. And we decide then that it's okay to have sexual contact before marriage. We decide that it's okay to give in to our desires for, to someone who's of the op, in terms of that's not our spouse. We desire that it's okay to give in the desires to a person of the same sex. We decide to make the rules. And we then we dismiss. Where does it lead? We dismiss God as unloving. Or because he wants to be holy in this area, we dismiss the word of God. Well, it's not accurate, and you know what? Paul really didn't mean that. And yet Paul goes, this is the will of God. And then we decide what's loving. And here's the tension even there. God is the one that decides what's loving, not us. And then we decide when life should begin. Is it conception or is it when the baby comes out of the womb? That's when life begins. And then we begin to decide that it's okay to redefine marriage. Do you understand what's gone on? Look at Isaiah 5 verse 20 again. Because there's, there's another issue here I've got to speak to. Look at 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those. Uh, let me show you the same thing, I think, in, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord, look at this, is the avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You see what Paul is doing there? He's warning him: Stay away from that. Don't believe those lies. Now, I understand that you know, this isn't politically correct. And if a politician says this, they're, they're skewed. The idea there that somehow, that God may judge this issue. And anyway, you folks, this is what the Scriptures are saying. God is going to deal with it. And there's the warning, woe is me. Now, now realize this. On these two texts, Isaiah and 1 Thessalonians, who really is the warning to? Now, it really isn't, frankly, to the world out there. The warning is to those that are claiming to be followers of Christ. Isaiah. It was the nation of Israel who claimed to follow God. And Paul is warning them to people, going, Don't flip that switch. You've come along and said, Good is evil and evil is good. And he's going, Judgment. God's going to deal with it. Do you catch the struggle there that we have to be reminded of? That God hates this. But here's where we need to go one step farther. And I need to kind of ask this question. Why does God want us to flee from sexual immorality? Is it a God up here just saying, no? Is that what God knows is the reason? Let me give you the reason why I think he's so emphatic in that he decides what's loving, what's sinful but also why he wants us to flee from sexual immorality. And I, I want to re- give you the scripture here, one of the couple scriptures to look at real quick. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5. A very much of a parallel passage written a number of years later. says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. We've been talking about that earlier as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving." For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. The fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern, and there's this idea of pleasing what's pleasing to the Lord again. But understand why even this text is that he's saying stay away from this stuff. And here's the reason why a little bit later in the chapter, verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. There's that word in what we read earlier. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy holy and without blemish see god is saying flee sexual immorality why because he understands that that we are called to prepare to become the bride of christ it's not just saying no it's because something, because we're going to be we're in union with Christ and he wants to make us holy and beautiful on that day when Christ and the church marry each other, when there's a union with each other. So it's not just saying no for no reason. It's because he wants us beautiful. That's the real reason. But let me show you one more passage. Some of you might have caught that in that text that it's Jesus is the one that's making us more beautiful. But let me show you another one from Revelation 19. I, I think I had shown this about a year ago or so. This is the great wedding that we're talking about here. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty, the peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And look at this next phrase. And His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what is... Paul writing even here. He's saying this, the world is trapped in stuff. Flee that. And he invites us to go, it's about our walk with Christ, it's about getting ready to be with Jesus. He wants us to be like Jesus so that we become a beautiful bride See, there's a purpose of saying flee those things. Turn your back on those things. Run from those things. Why? Because he wants us beautiful to be ready for Christ. And in that, he invites us to pursue him. Turn away from this. Abstain. Move toward Jesus. And when we pursue him, there's things that take place in a beautiful way. Some things like this. God gives you new desires. He allows those worldly desires to fade away. And all of a sudden, you want to please not the flesh. You begin to want to please God. And it becomes easier to do that. And he wants to give freedom. And he wants to give power to walk away from those things. See, that's what he's inviting us toward. It's ironic, we got the table today. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and um, understand that this table represents freedom. It really does. It represents the power. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he gave us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has the ability, as we draw on the power of the Holy Spirit, we can walk and flee from that stuff. And we don't have to live that way. And in doing so, we become more beautiful. And in God's eyes, we're getting ready for the great wedding, for us to be with Christ even in the future. Father, um, today was a, a hard passage. And yet, Lord, the call on that you have, the truth that you have is that we would flee from sexual immorality. Lord, you want us to become beautiful. You want us to to move in a way that is moved moving away from self-love to loving you. So Lord, as we look at our own lives, I just pray that you would work in us in so many different areas, that you would move us and help us to walk toward you, to know you more, to have new desires to love you with our heart, soul, and mind. So, Father, we thank you again for your grace and your love, and we, we give this day to you, we give this week to you, and may it be honoring to you. These things we pray in your name. Amen. If you don't know somebody around uh, that you're, where you're at, just introduce yourself and have a great week, have a great day.